This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hi everybody, I'm just going to spend the next half an hour um, comparing the RV to PA conduit to the modified BT shunt. Um, thank you for having me here today. Um, I have no conflict of interest and I have no commercial support. So the objectives for the next 20-30 uh, minutes are to provide an overview of a historical perspective and a surgical procedure for both the Norwood with the RV to PA conduit and the BT shunt, to compare the two different shunt types and to highlight general principles of post-operative management and clinical care. So it was actually Bill Norwood who first uh, utilized the RVDPA conduit for stage one palliation of hypoplastic left heart syndrome in a study of 16 consecutive patients um, who entered for stage repair. And this was back in the late 70s, early 80s. And as you can see, there are a variety of um, approaches that he took. But here in the second approach, he, he actually utilized the RV to PA conduit. But this early group had really high mortality. So the modified BT shunt became the standard of choice for um, stage one palliation. So it wasn't until, and then he published um, in 1982, the stage Fontan procedure for a child with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And then it wasn't until 1998 that Kishimoto and colleagues back in Japan, they were having such um, bad um, or high mortality with the stage one with the BT shunt that they re revived the RV to PA conduit. And around the same time, Sano and colleagues were doing the same. The difference was that Kishimoto was using a valve conduit, which they had good post-operative success, but then they found the conduit became stenotic over time. And so it was Sano and colleagues who revived this as well, and they used a non-valved PTFE or a polytetrafluoroethylene um, PTFE <laughs> graft, uh, four to five millimeters, non-valved, and that really improved survival um, to 84% from what it was previously. So, um, and that became adopted by many centers. And as um, Jane Newberger probably went over with the SVC trial is that the initial outcomes have been uh, better with the Sano, but, um, and I'm sure she's gone over what, what we see now. So if we quickly just go over the procedure, the surgical technique varies from center to center using either a brief period of deep hypothermic cardiac arrest or regional cerebral perfusion, which allows for a time to work on the aortic arch restructuring. But for both repairs, so there's a PDA ligation, there's a coarctectomy, there's aortic arch augmentation, an MPA division, and then the DKS operation or a Damus K. Stanzel, which is the extensive arch reconstruction with the aorta and the PA. And then for whatever type of surgery you do for pulmonary blood flow, it's either going to be the Sano or the um, um, BT shunts. So here you've got the new aortic reconstruction to provide systemic flow. Atrial septectomy is very key to this operation because you do not want to have obstruction to pulmonary venous return to that uh, single heart 
going out to flowing systemically. And then for the RVDPA conduit, it's, uh, it's the, to provide pulmonary blood flow. Usually the distal stump of the pulmonary trunk is utilized, usually a four to five millimeter non-valve conduit via right ventriculotomy incision. And so the technique for doing this has changed, and it's very, um, it's different from center to center, from surgeon to surgeon. But it used to be that they, they did a punch hole to put this conduit in. So if you can imagine taking a, a little chunk out of the RV, now that's not done. And the reason for that was because it's a muscle and it's contracting. So without um, a free obstruction to flow, it would contract down on itself. But so now what um, our techniques are um, changing quite a bit. And in fact, what we're doing here, most of our surgeons, Ram and others and Chris, is they um, do this thing called the dunking technique. And it's a um, transmural insertion of an externally reinforced conduit or the dunk. So they do a reinforced ring conduit. They do a minimal ventriculotomy incision dunk the conduit in like a straw, and there's a ring-reinforced graft so that it prohibits the um, RV from squeezing in to cause stenosis, and they have better outcomes with this. So it is changing, and it is adapting. So this is um, courtesy of Ram Imani. Um, so here you can see that they're uh, made an incision. It's a minimally invasive incision to place the conduit. So... Um, Soon you'll see him bring in the ring to reinforce grafts. There's a lot of movement with the headlights at the moment. And um, um, he'll put the, um, the uh, conduit, the ring reinforced conduit with a Hagar and then um, dunk it in. And so this, this helps to secure that and with minimal sutures. So they, as you'll see in a minute, he'll pull open um, the base where he cut the incision into the RV and then he'll dunk the conduit in and so more, less sutures, and so then less scar tissue, hopefully, with this procedure. It's the PTFT, the polyfluorotetra <laughs> conduit, and it's a little ring graph. So there he's dunking it in, putting it into the RV, and, and that has been shown with better outcomes. So that kind of, you get the gist of it here. Um, so, and then this, this was just um, published recently by Jamie Bentham, Chris Beard, and, and colleagues here. And what they're finding is with the ring reinforced conduit, it's associated with decreased intervention with a higher pulse pressure, improved PA growth. So, um, again, um, what we do here isn't necessarily what another surgeon or center may be doing. It's very surgeon and center specific. And in fact, um, Frank Pagula has tried using this uh, um, taffetas vein graft because it's, it's got a valve in it and so to avoid the effects of uh, pulmonary regurgitation, which I'll get into in a minute. So um, now when we compare the, um, the Norwood with the BT shunt, again, you're creating the neo-aorta. This is review for you, all you guys, utilizing the pulmonary trunk and the diminutive native aorta. Um, in atrial septectomy again, and then the modified BT shunt. It's either from the subclavian artery or the right, um, excuse me, the anomalous artery, the right subclavian artery. And it's usually a three and a half millimeter shunt, but it's really dependent on the weight of the patient. And so the ideal size aids in minimizing the post-operative effects of increased pulmonary blood flow at the expense of systemic blood flow for both shunts, whether it's a BT shunt or an RV to PA conduit. 
and why um, people changed to the RVP and conduit, it seemed easier to control that increased pulmonary blood flow and lack of systemic flow because you're only getting um, flow and systole via that RVPA conduit as opposed to the BT shunt where it's in both systole and diastole, so you get um, more torrential pulmonary blood flow often. Um, so when we compare the two shunts, so uh, let's look at them individually. So the RV to PA conduit, there's no diastolic steel, meaning that with the BT shunt, you're getting flow in both systole and diastole through that shunt to the lungs. So it's in, impacting your diastolic blood pressure where you don't get that in RV to PA conduit. So the benefit of that is that you have increased coronary perfusion because remember that you, you, you perfuse your coronaries in diastole. So if your diastolic blood pressure is a little bit better, then you have better coronary perfusion. However, there's free, par, uh, free PR via the conduit. So um, these kids tend to be a little bit bluer because you're only perfusing in systole. So this is this to and fro flow. So therefore, you have decreased respiratory reserve. So if you throw atelectasis or a pneumonia on top of this, these kids are going to be even bluer. And there have been issues with distal PA growth. So both of these surgeries are associated with volume low to a single ventricle, but the reason is different for each. And for the RV to PA conduit, it's because of free PR. Um, and often you get proximal PA stenosis, conduit stenosis rather, not PA, um, for the RV to PA conduit, but with the ring reinforced graft, hopefully this should be better. Um, RV aneurysm, and there's an incision in the RV. And if you go to an earlier bidirectional glenar stage two, it's usually because of hypoxemia. So with the BT shunt, you've got diastolic steel, you've got lower diastolic blood pressure, wider pulse pressure, decreased coronary perfusion excessive blood flow because you have flow in both systole and diastole, so your volume low from a single ventricle is usually from excess flow. You can be more prone to acute shunt obstruction, and the reason we don't see acute shunt obstruction so much in RV to PA is because there's this to and fro flow. But here with the BT shunt, that's where you're more likely to see it. And if you do go to an earlier bidirectional gland, it's usually from volume low to a single ventricle and, and CHF issues. So theoretically then, or, or not, the RV to PA provides a greater balance of PQ, PQ to um, Q, uh, QP to QS, so pulmonary to systemic perfusion in a postoperative uh, period. There's no diastolic seal from aortic runoff, so there's improved diastolic breath, blood pressure, more narrow pulse pressure than with the Norwood with the BT shunt, improved coronary perfusion, improved end organ perfusion, improved central PA growth. So um, some general principles of postoperative management, many of which the principles are somewhat the same from the pre-op that Trish talked about to the post-op, but there's some things you're doing different. And they're, they're the same for both. The difference being that for the BT shunt, because your um, issues with increased pulmonary blood flow, um, it's sometimes harder to balance that in the immediate post-operative period. So the general principles include unobstructed intraatrial communication, unobstructed systemic outflow via the neoaorta and the aortic arch, optimal pulmonary blood flow through whatever shunt you're using, and you really want to maximize the ratio of oxygen delivery to oxygen extraction, and it's all about the appropriate shunt size. So if you um, put in too big of a shunt, then you're going to sacrifice systemic perfusion because you're going to get too much pulmonary blood flow. 
The caveat being is you have to put in a little bit of a bigger shunt because you have to allow for growth. So it's that balancing effect of that. So managing QPQS in the post-operative period is important, and I think Trish sort of went over the FIC principle for you. But the problem with the FIC principle, it's, it's helpful, but in, in when you do the calculation, it's the systemic oxygen saturation, so your, um, your arterial oxygen sat minus your mixed venous sat, which is from your SVC, so you can draw that value and get that divided by the pulmonary venous oxygen saturation minus your arterial sat. The problem with this calculation is your pulmonary venous oxygen saturation is a it's a, an assumed value. We're just plugging 95 in there, and we have no way of directly knowing because we're not directly measuring it. So you have to take this formula with a grain of salt, and that, um, um, that th this can be helpful, but you have to really use this formula with um, clinical assessment of hemodynamics and other indicators of cardiac function. So in this example, if your patient sat was 85 and you measured a mixed venous sat was 50 and you're assuming that the pulmonary vein is 95, then it would be 85 minus 50, which equals 35, divided by 95 minus 85, which is 10. So 35 minus 10, the QPQS is three and a half. So in this patient, he's getting a lot more pulmonary blood flow than um, is probably good for him. So um, post-operative management, so low cardiac output, um, increase in systemic vascular resistance, and myocardial dysfunction often occur in the post-operative period. And the medications that we often use are milrinone, nitroprusside, because it's all about decreasing your afterload. And that's what you want to focus on. Uh, Intraoperative um, phentolamine, which is... Um, uh, it's a, a reversible non-selective adrenergic blocker and orphanoxabenzamine, which we don't tend to use here, but um, Tweddle and colleagues in, in Wisconsin tend to use this a lot. The problem with both of these drugs is they have an extremely long half-life, and it's very difficult to reverse effects of phenoxabenzamine once on board, and you can only really do it with vasopressin. So we generally don't use that here. Um, and, and vasopressor support would be important. And you want to avoid decreasing uh, pulmonary resistance excessively. So caution should be uh, used with manipulating mechanical ventilation to increase resistance to pulmonary blood flow to match SVR. Because this will lead to pulmonary venous desaturation, causing decreased um, systemic oxygen delivery if you're not balanced with an increase in, in systemic outflow. So you got to be very careful with this. And this is more of an issue with the... Um, BT shunt. So manipulating the FCR is a more reliable way to manage QPQS rather than ma manipulating the P uh, PVR. So what are things that we normally would do? Correction of coagulopathy. You don't want to lose a lot of uh, blood, so you can treat with blood products, but also it's important for preload. You want to keep your CVP up. And then if you want to keep your crit 40 to 50, 45 to 50 to opt optimize oxygen delivery. So you want to be aware of that. Temperature control is very key, and the um, group here is trying to bring these patients up more uh, closer to normothermic and not so hypothermic. Why is hypothermia bad for you? First of all, you don't clot very well, so you'll bleed more. But second of all, it increases your SVR. So if they're really hypothermic, that's not really good for output, right? So you kind of want them, um, and again, conversely, you don't want them to get a fever even above 37 too much if they're really sick because that's going to increase your uh, myocardial demand and myocardial um, need for oxygen. So 
36 to 37 is kind of where you want them, and, and you really should have a rectal probe or some continuous monitoring when they come up from the OR. You're going to monitor for tricuspid regurgitation and anything that's going to cause low cardiac output. And you want to minimize metab metabolic demand and stress with analgesia, sedation, pharmacological paralysis. And again, it's like your ventilatory maneuvers, you don't want to um, encourage too much pulmonary blood flow, so you're usually on an FIO2 of 21%. If it's a BT shunt, maybe a little higher for the RV to PA. Uh, you'll want to hyperventilate them. Um, but you have to be careful, so you're striving for the gas of 740-4040. And, and, and pulmonary reactivity, if you've had pu persistent um, pulmonary blood flow in the preoperative phase, that's going to um, predispose you to pulmonary hyper uh, hypertensive crisis in, in the postoperative period. So that can be an issue as well. We're looking to keep our mean arterial blood pressure somewhere between 40 and 50. If it's greater than 50, things you might want to consider are increasing your milrinone, if not already, decreasing your inotropes if you can, maybe adding some nipride, even up to four mics per kilo per minute if you needed. If your blood pressure is too low and your CVP is low, then obviously it's a volume issue. But again, remember that crit, you want to maximize oxygen delivery, so a crit of 45 to 50 is probably better, and um, albumin otherwise. And a CVP of 12 or more, because at times your cardiac output improves with a higher CVP. So early indicators of inadequate systemic perfusion include low mixed venous saturation via the SVC and a rising lactate level, so, um, and a widening AVO2 difference. As you guys know, um, normal mixed venous sat for you and I, two ventricles, what, like 72 to 75, and we're 100% saturated. For a single ventricle patient, you look at their oxygen saturation, and there sh should be no more than a 25 to 30 point difference. So if you see on the monitor, a sat is 85, and that means your mixed venous sat should be about 50 to 55. If your oxygen sat is 75, then your mixed venous sat 45 to 50. So you get the gist of that. So when you have a widening AVO2 difference and your, um, your uh, mixed venous sat starts to fall, it's a poor indicator of um, output and, and a higher uh, risk of mortality and morbidity. And so your risk of animal aerobic metabolism increases significantly if your mixed venous sat is less than 30%. And um, in a study by Tweddle and colleagues um, in Wisconsin, they found that targeting a mixed venous sat of 50% post-Norwood procedure was the single most important factor in decreasing early mortality. So that's sort of where you want to look. So while lactate um, will rise as something's happening, it's actually a later sign because once the lactate's risen, something's occurred. The first thing that's changed is a mixed venous saturation. So it's a great idea to correlate your mixed venous sat with your nearest. The near-infrared spectroscopy is on the, you know, on your forehead. It's monitoring cerebral perfusion. It's not an absolute value, but it will give you a trend. So it's a good idea to get your mixed venous sat, see what your nearest is, and then follow the trend. If your nearest is falling, that might be a good time to get your mixed venous sat or repeat it. So, um, and then... Things like metabolic acidosis and increased lactate are signs of poor perfusion, because as you remember, if you're not um, perfusing very well, you start breaking down uh, for instead of aerobic metabolism to anaerobic metabolism at a cellular level, and you spill lactate into your blood, and you get acidotic. So, and it's actually the rate of rise of the lactate. I'm less concerned with the lactate that comes back at 8 
maybe stays at eight and a seven, then one that goes to three to five in an hour, it's the rate of rise that's more important. So other signs of low cardiac output, decreased perfusion or tachycardia, decreased urine output, and low blood pressure is a late sign. So post-operative risk factors for poor outcomes include decreased uh, mixed venous stat, less than 30, a lactate greater than 10, and rapid rate of rise. CVP greater than 15 to maintain an adequate blood pressure, an estimated QPQS of greater than 2 to 3, and moderate severe TR on an early postoperative echo, or anything that's causing obstruction to flow, anything that's going to affect your cardiac output. So managing acute um, shunt obstruction is an emergency that requires prompt intervention. So uh, you should be listening for a shunt murmur, and if you see your oxygen sap drop precipitously, that's usually an indicator of um, acute shunt obstruction. How do you manage uh, shunt obstruction with volume to keep perfusion through the shunt? Adequate analgesia and sedation, supplemental oxygen. A heparin bolus to stop the progression of a clot. It's not going to take away the clot, but it'll hopefully stop the progression. Interventional cath and reop. And as you guys know, if these kids are going fast, they're going to be on ECMO pretty quick. And uh, research indicates both here, um, studies by Catherine Allen and colleagues and in CHOP, that if you go on for shunt obstruction or a reversible cause, it actually is a, a good outcome. You, you have a decreased mortality with it. So it is actually a reversible cause if you can catch it early. So um, it's well documented that malnutrition and inadequate growth um, are common in hypoplast right after stage one surgery and is associated with increased morbidity and increased length of stay. So um, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you want to optimize nutrition and it starts in the ICU. Post-op day one, you want to um, liberalize your fluids if you can to at least 100 cc's per kilo per day. And the goal is to get them on PN right away. The goal of 90 to 100 kilocals per day. And you want to start enteral feedings as early as possible as soon as you see signs of adequate systemic perfusion. You're peeing okay. Your output seems better. Your goal is 120 to 150 kilocals per day, and an optimal weight gain is 20 to 30 grams per day. And following a feeding algorithm has been shown to be a really effective way of advancing feeds um, safe and effectively and very quickly. And Nancy Broadus, um, feeding algorithm and others is what we use generally in our ICU. So what are some uh, uh, diagnostic evaluation? Is the repair good, or are you worried about low cardiac output? What are the things you're looking for? You're looking for aortic art obstruction, any AV valve regurgitation, so it's usually TR, aortic regurgitation, um, decreased ventricular function, the ratio of pulmonary to systemic blood flow, is there evidence of overcirculation or undercirculation, and the pericardial fluid, anything that's going to inhibit um, cardiac output or function. So this is a nice little, this is courtesy of Robbie, nice little graph I find really helpful, especially as someone's newer at the bedside. What's the scenario? Your SAT's 80, your mixed venous SAT is 60, your blood pressure's okay, probably your QPQS is balanced, you usually don't need to do anything. Say a prayer and hope it continues. If your SAT is greater than 90 and your blood pressure is low, you probably have too much pulmonary blood flow rather than systemic. So it may, is your SVR too high and your PVR is too low? Could it be arch obstruction? Could it be anything else that is obstructing flow out the um, aorta? 
vasodilators may be helpful or controlled hypoventilation. Is your SAT less than 75 and your blood pressure is, is decent or high, then is it the reverse? Is your not enough pulmonary blood flow maybe more systemic? Is your PVR too high? Um, could it be a shunt obstruction? Any problems with that? Um, so measures to decrease PVR, you want to increase your cardiac output, increase your crit in your oxygen um, uh, delivery capacity. Is your SAT less than 75? Your blood pressure is crappy and your mixed venous SAT is lousy. It's usually low cardiac output. Is it from something that's reversible? Is it AV valve regurgitation or arch obstruction? And then this is where you're going to probably be on more inotropic support and things to minimize stress. I'm not going to go over this in great detail because I know Jane Neuberger has gone over the single ventricle trials, but the reason for switching to the SANO by most centers, and by the way, um, it used to be politically incorrect to say SANO because it was Norwood who had invented it, but now people say SANO, it just is what it is. Um, so as you know very quickly, the primary outcome of this first trial was death or transplant at 12 months. The secondary outcomes were unintended cardiovascular interventions, um, RV size and function at 14 months, transplant-free survival. And this um, early groups of patients, um, there was better transplant-free survival at 12 months with the RV to PA conduit. And the greatest deaths occurred in the, in the uh, interstage period. And so I think she probably went over where we're at now. And we're probably, with the RVB PA conduit, we're suffering maybe from RV dysfunction or things related to the con that uh, type. But it's still a work in progress. So anyway, I'm not going to go over that because she did it already. But in summary, patients undergoing a stage 1 normal procedure are at risk for labile hemodynamics and adverse events, including cardiac arrest. Uh, Postoperative management requires balancing QP and QS, reducing SVR, avoiding excessive pulmonary blood flow with excessive uh, ventilation, enhancing myocardial contractility, prompt treatment of low cardiac output, close monitoring of mixed venous saturation and lactate, Prompt evaluation and correction of residual anatomic lesions, such as aortic obstruction, um, or anything that can cause um, low cardiac output. And in comparing the two operations, a stage one with the RV to PA conduit prevents diastolic steel and allows better coronary perfusion. It improves hemodynamic stability in the postoperative period, is associated with improved survival at 12 months, and no significant difference in survival after 12 months of age. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.